0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. Think of yourself as an astronaut in a spaceship or an aquanaut diving deep into the sea. As a crew member on that voyage, you need to know how your life support system works and make sure you're taking proper care of it. Well, you are a crew member on this precious blue planet, not a passenger or a mere consumer of its goodies. If your life support system starts to break down, you're in real trouble. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Hello, and welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explorers 2022 edition. I hope you got a bit of a break during the festive season we've just had. Podcasters need the occasional break as well, of course. I used mine to reflect on the conversations I've had with my guests this past year and to reconnect with them. Just for fun, I turned the tables and asked them what questions they wish they had asked me. They come up with some great ones, and I'll share some of them with you in today's episode. Let's start with my deep-sea friend, Victor Vescovo, who I spoke with in episode 11. Victor asked, with all you have done and seen across multiple air, sea, and space technologies, what do you think is the most important technological advance we should be working on right now? What area of technology should we be investing in with no higher priority globally? And like a good teacher, Victor added, please be specific. The technology I would put at the top of my list is biomanufacturing. This is something I'm only just learning about myself, actually, thanks to my work on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, or PCAST. PCAST is the most prestigious of scientific advisory bodies in the United States, reporting directly to the President himself. So, biomanufacturing includes mapping and engineering biomolecules and biosystems meaning the molecules within cells, as well as cells, tissues, and organs. With current science, innovations in this arena are estimated to have the potential to address 45% of the global disease burden and to produce 60% of the world's physical inputs. That last bit means that there are new biological ways to make and process the materials, chemicals, and energy we use in everyday life today. Just to give two examples... Mushroom roots can be used instead of animal hides to produce leather, and plastics can be made with yeast instead of petrochemicals. Innovations like these could transform human health diagnostics and treatments, food production, and consumer goods, and cut the environmental impact of energy and chemical production. In other words, they could deliver both individual and global benefits. Economically, the direct impact of this over the next one to two decades is estimated to be in the hundreds of billions of dollars. I find the science underlying all this fascinating, and the technologies that are making it possible, like single cell imaging tools, positively dazzling. Next up is meta performer Stacy Board. I spoke with Stacy in episode nine about performing in and running her theater group Shadowbox Live. Stacy asked how the arts played a role in my personal and professional development. On the personal front, music and nature are the two things I can always count on to wind me down when I'm stressed and inspire me when I'm running out of creative steam. I have two go-to playlists. One is purely instrumental, a mix of light jazz, new age, and classical. I can think, write, dream, or just relax when that's playing. The other is a mix of vocals that I call my anthems songs whose vibrancy pumps up my aspirational energy. My favorites range from I'm on Top of the World by Imagine Dragons, to oldies from ABBA, the Beach Boys, and the Beatles, and ripping soundtrack tunes like from Top Gun. Basically anything that would be suitable for belting out as I zoom along the highway. And then there's literature. Books were my first vehicles of exploration. As a schoolgirl, I explored the geography of the world around me via atlases, biographies of explorers like Heinrich Schliemann, and novels like James Michener's Caravans. Reading history, biographies, and great novels taught me more about what makes people tick and how they behave together than I could ever learn in a single classroom or even experience in my own life. Just for giggles. Stacy also asked whether I feel a greater connection to David Bowie and Queen, considering how much time I've spent under pressure. I don't think she meant the pressure at the bottom of the Challenger Deep. That's a lot easier to deal with than the existential pressures in the lyrics of that song. Rodeo Queen-turned-oceanographer Emily Newton from Episode 5 asked what worries me most about climate change and our oceans. I have to say, it's the health of our oceans overall. The ocean is the life support system for our planet. Think of yourself as an astronaut in a spaceship or an aquanaut diving deep into the sea. As a crew member on that voyage, you need to know how your life support system works and make sure you're taking proper care of it. Well, you are a crew member on this precious blue planet, not a passenger or a mere consumer of its goodies. If your life support system starts to break down, you're in real trouble. So, which effect of climate change on our ocean life support system worries me the most? The answer there is acidification. The ocean absorbs about one quarter of the excess carbon dioxide we add to the atmosphere. This makes the water more acidic, and more acidic water dissolves calcium carbonate, which is the stuff that makes up the shells of the microscopic oceanic plants that produce half of the oxygen we breathe and are the feedstock for everything else that lives in the ocean. Wreck that pyramid of life and you destroy your own oxygen supply. Writer and elephant protector Kim Frank, who joined me in episode 7, asked when I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up and what some of the pivotal moments were during my young life that sparked my determination to achieve what I've done. I never thought in terms of what I wanted to be when I was young. Instead, I had a strong but really quite vague sense Very early on, of what I wanted my life to be like. I was a very curious child and wanted to do and try things rather than just daydream about them. The early astronauts, Jacques Cousteau, and adventurous figures in the books I read all showed me that some people do live adventurous and inquisitive lives, and I felt drawn strongly to that. All the toys and games I most enjoyed in those early years also showed this. From the kindergarten Christmas list of guns I told about in an earlier solo, my crazy Christmas list if you want to listen, to the models I liked to build and the active games I preferred to play. A dinner at my favorite aunt's home when I was about nine was one of the pivotal moments. Another guest at the table was a very elegant woman who taught French at the same school as my aunt. I was seated right next to this imposing lady who was born in Russia and raised in Paris. At some point during dinner, my aunt mentioned to this Madame Gaillard that I was very interested in learning foreign languages. Is that right, she said, and then turned to me and asked me to mimic her pronunciation of several French sounds that are notoriously hard for English speakers. I remember two of them, Sion, as in pronunciation, spelled T-I-O-N, but pronounced very differently in French, and E, as in adieu. When I finished, she announced to everyone at the table that I had done very well and clearly had a natural flair for languages. Her words made me realize I had a real and rather rare talent, and I felt she helped my parents realize that my fascination with languages was more than their daughter's weird interest. I still didn't know what this meant I could or should be, but I now knew I had a strength that I wanted to build upon one that I sensed could be the key to exploring other parts of the world on my own. I spoke with National Geographic naturalist and wilderness guide Jennifer Kingsley in episode 19. Jenny asked about leadership and how to deal with being overlooked or underestimated. How do you keep yourself going, she wondered, and on the radar, so to speak, when others don't seem to see what you have to offer? And she wonders, maybe this had never happened to me, as someone so accomplished. Well, it has indeed happened to me, and more than once. One of my major professors in graduate school, I'll call him Mike, was a theoretical geophysicist. That means he was an expert in the physics of the Earth, like how its magnetic and gravity fields work, and how to use physical devices to understand it better. Much of his work involved sending sound waves through the seafloor to help understand the layers of mud and rock it's made of. The theoretical bit means that his real specialty was developing new equations to answer ever more complex questions. Theoretics was not my thing. I was interested in field work, and getting out into the real world and figuring out how some part of it worked. I was making the first detailed maps of an area on the seafloor east of Newfoundland, My work would clarify how that part of North America ripped away from Europe many millions of years ago, which was an important piece to add to the puzzle of North Atlantic geology. Mike was a theory snob. If you weren't developing new theories and equations, you were not doing valuable work. My kind of research was just pedestrian, trivial to him. So no matter how well I did my work or how rigorous my results were, he never felt it was worth very much. I had a hard time writing my doctoral thesis, knowing that the guy who was essentially the lead reviewer and gatekeeper to my final examination had prejudged it and me that way. Eventually, I realized that the only and also best weapon I had was my own voice, and that I needed to use it confidently to showcase what I had done as best I could. That broke my writer's block. In the end, the other three professors on my review committee, the one that would decide whether to award me a doctorate, deemed my work outstanding and worthy of added honors. But Mike stuck to his snobby guns and vetoed their recommendation. My PhD dissertation and thesis defense gave me a platform to showcase the work I had done. What do you do if you don't have such a built-in opportunity? If the people whose respect you'd like to have aren't asking to see your work or to hear from you? I've only got two suggestions for this situation. One is to remember that no one can speak as honestly about what you've done than you yourself. So be more assertive and find ways to put your work in front of them anyway. The second is don't wait forever. If someone has pigeonholed you and closed their mind to further consideration, move on. This is actually part of the reason I left NASA. I knew I had leadership potential. But the powers that be in that world didn't seem to consider me a contender. I had to decide whether to continue trying to convince them otherwise or find an opportunity to develop outside the agency. I decided it was better to shape my future than to suffer my fate at their hands. The toughest question of the batch came from Esri geographer Dawn Wright, who joined me for episode 24. Dawn asked, how to give significant, inspiring exploration accomplishments a longer tail, meaning to keep people talking and thinking about them long after the media sizzle is gone. She went on to wonder how we can foster more discussion about why exploration matters and what the long-term implications are of such activity. This podcast is my best answer to that question. I believe it is the stories of explorers, and their experiences in pushing frontiers that most captivate people and keep bringing their exploits to mind over time. Stories we have heard, read about, and lived, that's what we talk about and share most often. They're what we make new connections to over and over again as we meet new people and have new experiences of our own. My hope in sharing my guests' stories about the realms they have explored and the challenges and joys they've had along the way is that they trigger sparks in you of curiosity, wonder, empathy, and humor that you just can't wait to share with someone in your world. My thanks to my wonderful guests for asking me those questions. I hope they provided some value to you too. And of course, many thanks to you for listening. Oh, and one more thing. When you sign up to read my 7 Astronaut Tips for Improving Your Life on Earth, You'll also get the opportunity to have me answer your question. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Thanks again for joining me today, and Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.